This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Digital Media Editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Welcome to the latest Out of the Blue podcast. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Vincent Liu, who wrote a very interesting paper with his colleagues entitled The Timing of Early Antibiotics and Hospital Mortality in Sepsis. I'm also joined by Dr. Mervyn Singer, who wrote the very entertaining and interesting editorial that accompanied Dr. Liu's paper. Both were published in the October 1st Blue Journal. Dr. Liu is a Regional Director of Hospital Advanced Analytics in Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, as well as a Research Scientist at Kaiser Permanente Division of Research. And Dr. Singer is Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at the University College, London, England. I want to start out the podcast with a question for Dr. Liu. There is a growing body of literature that giving appropriate antibiotics earlier is better than later in sepsis, particularly septic shock. There's a a highly cited paper by Kumar that people refer to very commonly. As background to the current study, could you please summarize for our listeners a few highlights from this evidence base and what the related guidelines currently suggest? Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I think you're right that one of the most frequently cited papers, um, not only in the literature but disseminated out to the public and to health policy leaders, is the one by Dr. Anand Kumar. It was published in 2006 in Critical Care Medicine. It evaluated uh, close to 3,000 adult patients with septic shock um, to identify whether delays in antibiotics um, were associated with mortality and using the onset of hypotension as kind of that key um, time point for the start of the clock. Um, The most commonly cited statistic, I would say, from this study is that each hour of delay in antibiotics was associated with a 7.5% increase in mortality. Um, It is important to note that that was an older study. The Um, overall mortality rate in that cohort was greater than 50%, and the median time to onset of antibiotics after hypotension was six hours, with a mean time of 13 hours. So both in both of those facets, um, not particularly representative of, I think, what would be standard guidelines or practice today. More recently, a study using uh, surviving sepsis data by Dr. Frere uh, evaluated about 28,000 ICU patients from an from um, about 150 ICUs around the world. They um, identified that patients receiving antibiotics after the second hour were also at increased risk for mortality. And there have been several other retrospective studies that have shown similar findings, um, more re- most recently including um, the study in the New England Journal published by Chris Seymour and the team, um, showing that uh, there was an increase in the adjusted Um, odds ratios for hospital mortality for the elapsed hour between time zero and antibiotic administration. However, there are several studies that also don't appear to show a relationship between antibiotic timing and increased mortality. A systematic review published by Dr. Sterling included 11 studies and uh, pooled 16,000 patients together. And when looking at antibiotics given before three hours or after, 
Um, found an effect estimate, an odds ratio of 1.16, but that did not reach statistical significance. Um, and then uh, Dr. Puskarich and his team prospectively evaluated about 300 septic shock patients and also did not find an association between increased mortality and the timing of antibiotics. Um, however, they did find that patients who received antibiotics before shock recognition had significantly improved survival. So prior to our study, the data was mixed, and, the, and, the, and, and there's been controversy ongoing about whether or not a single hour's difference or very early antibiotics really make a difference in outcomes. I'll mention a, another study which was just published um, from 40 German hospitals, the MEDUSA study, um, and that was a prospective uh, cluster randomized trial. So without stealing any thunder here, they did find prospectively that each hour of delay in antibiotics in severe sepsis and shock was associated with what they estimated to be a 2% increase in mortality among a cohort of about 4,000 patients. Well, thank you for summarizing the, the varied data there. Um, and then, Dr. Singer, I'd like to follow up with, uh, with you. You're, I really enjoyed the title of your editorial, uh, Antibiotics for Sepsis, Does Each Hour Really Count? Or Is It Just Incestuous Amplification? Uh, a great title for an excellent read. In reading your editorial, it appears that you don't take issue with giving early appropriate antibiotics, per se, but rather with that mantra um, that, as, uh, as Dr. Liu mentioned, is also getting um, relayed in the mainstream media and, and, and to patients, that, that each hour delay in initiating antibiotics increases mortality. Can you explain this position to our listeners? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Nitim. Hi. Uh... Good uh, day, everybody. Um, no, thanks for the invitation to join in this podcast. And essentially, um, I'm coming at it partly from a, a sort of biological plausibility question and partly uh, looking at the data. And, uh, you know, I agree with a lot of what uh, Vinny was saying. But, you know, the, the data and the title in Cestuous Amplification actually evolved from Vietnam when they found that you put a lot of American generals all in the same tent and because everyone believed the same thing, it amplified their belief that they must be doing the right thing and often it turned out to be the wrong thing. And so there's this dogma, we have to believe we're doing something as clinicians to save lives and uh, traditionally uh, um, sepsis has been... Uh, um, helped or hindered by uh, guidelines and protocols and recommendations, and many of the things that were strong recommendations because the proof existed have subsequently been shown not to be so strong, and uh, you know that these have been uh, gradually whittled away, and so at the moment we're only left with antibiotics, and so we have to believe we're doing something, ergo antibiotics must be the answer. And so it's become, to my mind, a bit of a religious crusade to say every hour makes a difference. Um, the problem is these data, and uh, you know, we can argue about the Medusa trial because I think it's how... Uh, that paper's interpreted, and this is a sort of, there's, there was an earlier one which actually didn't show a benefit. It was a, a lot of um, subsequent analysis and adjustment, and that, and, you know, obviously Vinny can come back and uh, challenge me on this, but the problem is this is the use of retrospective databases that obviously 
haven't collected data prospectively. They've usually been collected for other reasons. There's lots and lots of assumptions, imputations for missing data and so forth. And then there's quite heavy adjustments. So the absolute mortality is often adjusted out. So the Ferrer paper that Vinnie mentioned, again, there was heavy adjustment, you know, in his analysis, the Chris Seymour analysis um, that he alluded to. Again, very heavy adjustment. So, again, it's fresh in my mind. The Chris Seymour paper from New York State, actually, with a three-hour window, there was just a, a 1% absolute difference in mortality between early and late antibiotics, and this was with a three-hour cutoff. So, you've got to question the validity, the absolute validity of these retrospective studies. And the biological plausibility I'd have is that we, in many cases, and often then not usually recorded in these uh, retrospective databases, we don't know when the infection actually began. Uh, did it begin or did the patient become symptomatic at least hours before they appeared in the emergency department? days or maybe even longer. So there's this unknown period of being ill and then just appearing in the emergency department at some unspecified time after the onset of symptoms and then thinking that that one hour makes an hour by hour difference and then you see these straight line relationships between every hour of delay and mortality just doesn't resonate with me. And Again, every prospective study I'm aware of that actually looks at detail at these uh, things hasn't actually been able to confirm this benefit in terms of hour by hour. There was a big Dutch study from a, a number of emergency departments in Holland. Again, couldn't find any relationship. And in fact, if anything, there was a bit of an inverse relationship. And it wasn't dependent on the severity of the patient either. So the, the challenge I'd make is, you know, in the ideal world, but ethically, I think, um, you know, there would be struggles for people to do it. You know, we'd need a prospective randomized trial, but, you know, fully accept it's not going to happen. So uh, we, we have the challenge about uh, what is... Uh, appropriate, accurate, and the best way of doing it. Yeah, well, thank you for that uh, that, that summary. Um, and and I, I do think, um, Dr. Singh, you remind us of, of a couple of things. It, it's very true that, you know, you say that the when, when does the clock start ticking? Uh, and if so, a certain person who presents with sepsis may be presenting with symptoms for days or weeks as opposed to someone who sort of has the acute onset of sputum production and rigors and presents to the ER within several hours, those are different uh, patients and likely have different responses. The other thing I think you pointed out about dogma and whether it's retrospective or prospective, I'm reminded of the guidelines, you know, 10 years ago regarding um, surviving sepsis, uh, recommending intensive insulin therapy to glucose is a 70 to 110 based on an RCT and obviously um, activated protein C at that time before a subsequent study showed that they didn't have benefits. So certainly have to be careful with dogma. Well, as a, um, I think that's a, a great um, background discussion for our listeners, and, and now I'd like to get into Dr. Liu's paper. Um, your group conducted a retrospective study, of, uh, but a large one, of 35,000 patients who were hospitalized with a diagnosis of sepsis based on ICD-9 codes through the emergency room at 21 Northern California Kaiser Permanente hospitals from the years 2010 to 2013. 
I would also point out for our listeners that the study occurred prior to the new sepsis-3 definitions of sepsis published by Dr. Singer and colleagues uh, last year. So, um, Dr. Liu, I'd like to, before we get into the meta study of the study, I was wondering what your hypothesis was and what were your specific aims with this study? It's funny. I totally agree with a lot of the points that um, Merv made here. I think that um, we conducted the study because of <laughs> we were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, uh, which is that the data is mixed. There's um, confounding and other issues with retrospective data. I, I don't think anybody would argue with that. And yet the potential to conduct the gold standard evidence, a randomized trial, did not seem, it seemed quite elusive. Um, and for all those reasons, you know, we felt that let's use the, the evidence that we've accumulated, this large patient sample, and let's try to do our best we can with retrospective data with very fine-grained adjustment. Um, in order to kind of digitally recapitulate or do our best to understand what are the factors that might drive an ED physician to give antibiotics within that earliest period, within maybe even a single hour. Because we know that there may, you know, the clinical gestalt of, of just talking to a patient, looking at the kind of um, complex of their symptoms, of their vital signs, maybe even labs if they're available at that time, are driving decisions um, even within that earliest phase. And if we wait too long, if we look at data only available at six hours, you know, we're going to miss it. I completely agree that um, the onset of infectious symptoms and that progression from simple infection to um, systemic infection to severe systemic infection with life-threatening organ dysfunction, we know extremely little about that time, uh, that timeline. And so for those reasons, we decided to, to start our time of potential antibiotic timing at ED triage. That is for us, you know, the time a patient presents to the front desk and swipes their card. Because us, that represented the first point at which a healthcare system could reasonably do anything for the patient. Because prior to that time, um, you know, they were essentially invisible to us. Um, you know, I, I think the time zero, I, I think it's true that, you know, lots of studies use different time zeros, but time zero is not a biologically plausible phenomena. It's, it's really an uh, administrative kind of um, overlay in order to help to set some standard. So that was the choice that we made to look at the time of ED presentation. I will say, honestly, um, because of kind of overturning of uh, prior clinical trial data that in, you know, in more contemporary practice hasn't been shown to be efficacious or effective, um, both in sepsis, but in the medical field in general, my hypothesis was actually that we would not find a benefit below three hours. And, and because we, you know, we helped to roll out uh, large scale and very difficult sepsis implementation programs and other types of programs across 21 hospitals affecting thousands of patients, the investments one needs to make at that systemic level are really profound. Uh, these are hundreds or thousands of clinicians who need to be trained. These are metrics. These are um, workflow changes. And so my thinking was that actually my, my pre-study hypothesis was that we wouldn't find a benefit, and that would give us confidence to say, let's do our best with that three-hour window um, because we, we feel like we have a good system built around 
that, and that seems like an achievable target. Um, so we wanted to look only at that first six hours of an antibiotic administration because we felt that that was most consistent with current practice. We wanted to evaluate all severity levels of sepsis because biologically, you know, the effect, if it was seen, should be consistent no matter how, how severe you are. Um, and then we wanted to not just look at that linear association, but try to break out each hour to understand, is there a point at which we could run a clinical trial because the evidence, the evidence base has been so mixed. Um, is there a place where everybody agree that it, the data is uncertain and the costs of trying to drive antibiotic administration even earlier are high? And so at this point, you know, maybe it would um, give us equipoise for a trial. So with that um, background, I'd uh, like you, uh, Dr. Lude, to describe um, the findings. Um, your group estimated the impact of antibiotic timing on risk-adjusted hospital mortality, as you mentioned, based on time from the registration in the ER to first dose of any antibiotic. So uh, I'd like to ask you two things. First, how did you do this risk adjustment for mortality, and what were your findings in regard to those first six hours and time to antibiotics and mortality? We used the best uh data that we had available um, from the uh, electronic medical record. We used, a, we used some composite measures of acute and chronic severity of illness, the presence of organ dysfunction based on laboratory or treatment parameters, you know, full code versus not full code status. We tried to look at vital sign measurements uh, within that first hour or first three hours, the, the summary statistics, as well as the number of vital signs, thinking that, you know, something like patients who are acquiring a lot more vital signs over a very narrow period of time um, would be those who would be at highest risk, which would be a motivating action um, for clinicians to, um, to say that they would want to give antibiotics. Um, so we use those um, in a standard logistic regression model, and our overall finding was that each hour that was elapsed between the time of ED presentation and antibiotic administration was associated with a 9% increase in the odds of hospital mortality. When we subgrouped down to the septic shock group, that was a 14% increase um, for in the odds for each elapsed hour, and it was closer to nine or a little bit lower for severe sepsis and sepsis. And, um, you know, statistically, we tried to estimate what that would translate into an absolute increase, and, and that was about 1.8% per elapsed hour. Um, interestingly, when we looked at each hour of elapsed time compared to that first hour, we found that there wasn't the appearance of a linear relationship. In fact, there seemed to be this plateau in the odds ratio for mortality around the second to the fifth hour, where mortality uh, seemed to be similar across that range. Thank you for that summary. Uh, I, I did want to actually follow up with Dr. Singer about that. Um, uh, doc, Dr. Singer, you know, you'd mentioned the, the issue with biologic uh, plausibility, and I think Dr. Liu just alluded to that fact that you know, talking about that 1.8% per hour uh, risk-adjusted in patients with septic shock. But it was very interesting that the, the mortality increased for the first two hours for each hour of delay and then plateaued between hours two and five and then increased again between hours five and six. So I'd ask for your comment of, about that finding and anything else regarding the study in general. Again, it boils down to the, you know, what do we expect? So. 
you know, within an hour, which was the reference point, and there was this big jump to about 23%, you know, increase in, in terms of adjusted odds ratio. And then it was completely flat for the next four hours. And then, as you say, in the last hour, hours five to six of anti, uh, for, to first antibiotic administration, there was a further jump up where the odds ratio was two. So there was a doubling. Um, so again, why should that be? And, uh, you know, and again, that just, you know, I, you know, clearly deferred to Vinny and his expertise with epidemiology and these sorts of analyses, but it, it doesn't quite make sense. Clearly, you know, as he um, himself acknowledged, you know, there's lots of things we don't know about the individual patients. We don't know, actually, did they truly have an infection? Um, so there's no microbiology data as such. Um, we don't know if the antibiotics were appropriate or not. Was there adequate source control? So all of these things are key and also a crucial factor what made the doctor give the antibiotic in that first hour as opposed to hours one two two to three three to four the late jump in the last hour again only totaled two and a half percent of the total population so we're looking at a tiny number of patients and the people the number of people dying in that was the same proportion as died um, earlier on and, and so I suppose my question back to Vinny is, uh, does he have an explanation? Because it it doesn't quite fit with my, my sort of gestalt, as it were, as to uh, how patients react and respond. And clearly, are there factors about the patients and, you know, the sort of ease of uh, diagnosis of sepsis, for example, you know, what makes a doctor treat immediately? Because I'm sure, obviously, there's uh, organizational issues about finding the antibiotics, drawing them up, giving them, etc. But by and large, you know, if what makes the doctor generally delay? And so is there an uncertainty in terms of the diagnosis? And again, how does that reflect in terms of the accuracy of the diagnosis? There have been some very nice studies from emergency departments where they've looked at patients who were initially treated with antibiotics on suspicion of sepsis. And on average, somewhere between 15 to 30 percent of these patients actually turn out to have something else. Um, again, refer back to the Chris Seymour study where, from New York State where they looked at it. There was no effect whatsoever in, I think I might have got this the right way around or the wrong way around, but it's either gram-negative or gram-positive bacteremia. However, um, there was a big treatment effect when there was no bug isolated at all. So, again, my, my problem is equating this with sort of real life and the questions about why was there a delay and did they actually have an infection or not? Back to you, Vinny. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that we, in this study, our intent was to use the best we could from electronic medical record data. And I think clearly there's opportunities to include fluids and, and looking at appropriate microbiology and subgroups. Um, I think the bottom line here is it points out um, a place where uh, until we can do the prospective randomized study, nobody will the people who have some preference on either side, I think will be stuck uh, believing the evidence from that side um, because there's simply no way 
to um, even a even a more complex retrospective EMR study um, will I think will always be fundamental fundamentally limited and and again we've seen this outside of sepsis outside of critical care or in hospital care in general um, and so you know I think that the plateau perhaps gives us an opportunity to say. There's the appearance that there's a group of patients in whom um, potential quote-unquote delays, or I'll say more elapsed time, um, to antibiotic administration may not be harmful. Um, Maybe the less severe patients, um, those in whom there's diagnostic uncertainty about whether this is truly infection that's driving it or the appearance of infection really on top of something else. And in that, in those groups of patients, is there an opportunity for us to really answer this question? Um, because I think that, again, even, I mean, you know, there have been a number of fairly large studies now with the kind of um, very high-quality analyses, um, but I'm not sure they're ever going to get us to the point where um, we are going to comprehensively agree um, of, about exactly what the timing threshold should be. And I, and I think we're going to talk about this more, but I think there, it poses a larger question, which is, you know, how we tried to frame the paper. I think the larger question is we don't know, nobody has quantified what the harms of trying to reach a one hour, even if we were to agree that one hour was our target. Um, what the harms of trying to reach that would be. Because there's a huge opportunity cost for a health system that is able to achieve, you know, uh, pretty high compliance with a three-hour target or even a two-hour target. But I think the incremental benefits of the investment, you know, the investment that needs to be made to move to these very, very early time intervals um, is pretty uh, low. The incremental benefit is low. The cost is very high, Um, not only in, you know, potentially misapplied antibiotics, which could engender risks of antimicrobial resistance, um, but also just diverting attention from other things. Um, I think from the emergency department um, it's clear we can achieve very early care. We do it in heart attacks. We do it increasingly in stroke. And even in the New York State study, in our study, a lot of patients, um, the majority received antibiotics within two hours. So it's not that it's impossible to do that. I just think that um, we've really not well quantified what the cost of doing that would be. I think the Medusa study shows us that even when you do this, you know, very well conducted prospective trial or what they've, you know, trying to do education and metrics and feedback um, in order to reduce the time of antibiotics, it had no effect actually on the hospitals. They didn't actually reduce their time of antibiotics. So even within that pretty rigorous you know, research, prospectively um, designed study, there was a lot of limitations. So the cost for um, moving towards a very early target is very high, and and we don't understand what the, um, we don't understand, we haven't quantified all those costs. Before I sort of get Dr. Singer's uh, uh, thoughts on that sort of big picture question, um, I I did want you to clarify one thing, if, if I may, Dr. Liu. We've been talking about odds ratio and then percentages uh, risk, um, and so I would like you to just clarify in terms of the percentage increase mortality per hour versus the odds ratio, just so our listeners are clear. 
Right. So even if um, all three groups had the same odds ratio, which is a you know, let's just say a nine percent relative increase um, in their odds of mortality, because they have overall different mortality rates. For example, maybe in the septic shock group, and I don't have the exact details in front of me. Maybe it was twenty percent, and in just the bland sepsis, it was five percent. Because um, so when you translate that relative increase into an absolute increase, you're going to see. Um, a difference in those. So when we looked at it statistically, um, that 1.14 increase in the odds of hospital mortality translated into that 1.8% number. Um, for patients with sepsis, bland sepsis, or less severe sepsis, it was something like 0.3%. Yeah. yeah, so the septic shock group was the one that had the 1.8% increased risk per hour. Yep, thank you for, for clarifying yeah. that. So then, um, you know, I, I think this has been a very thoughtful conversation and a nuanced conversation as opposed to saying, you know, that, that I think it's clear from yeah, both of you that it's not clear what a threshold um, that time to first antibiotic would be even appropriate and that whether it's even a true measure of quality of care. Um, Dr. Singer, I'd, I'd ask you first, you know, I think Dr. Lou already articulated that setting a threshold has unintended consequences hospital compliance, individual physician compliance, building teams to meet that threshold um, takes resources potentially away from other um, uh, diseases that we need to treat in the hospital. Uh, and, and the question becomes, you know, with all the, 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 the fundamental um, issues related to uh, looking at a retrospective database, um, you know, it, it would be one would be very uh, cautious about about making that sort of change. So, you've articulated a very thoughtful counter argument to just picking that time, and you raise the question of equipoise for a prospective trial of immediate versus sort of considered antibiotics, where you work the patient up um, and then you treat as as, the, as, uh, as appropriate. So I'm just skeptical that there is a general appetite for that sort of trial. So I wonder, you know, where do we go from here? And um, in terms of figuring out what the best approach is to delivering early appropriate antibiotics. Um, well, in fact, the, the trial that can be done and actually has been done, but I'm not at liberty to disclose the results, is a trial of pre-hospital antibiotics. So patients who are brought into hospital by a paramedic team where the antibiotic's actually given at the site and you pick a, a broad spectrum antibiotic. So this trial has been done. It's a large multi-center trial from Holland and I think we need to wait and see uh, what those results yield. Um, so that that's the easiest sort of trial to do because clearly in usual practice antibiotics aren't in general given in the community. Um, the other thing, and again, it depends uh, on the level of equipoise. There was a fascinating study from the University of Virginia Surgical Center, Surgical ICU rather. Um, this was done a number of years ago and the first named author was Haranjek and uh, Robert Sawyer was the lead author and it came out in a very good journal, Clinical Infectious Diseases. And what they did there was that they Patients who were on their surgical ICU 
with a suspicion of um, sepsis. This was a before-after study. So for one year, their practice of giving antibiotics on spec after taking cultures and so forth. And in the second year, and they felt that nothing materially had changed in their patient population or the way they managed patients, they actually delayed giving an antibiotic until either a fluid showed a, a positive gram stain for an anti uh, a microorganism or the microbiology lab came up with a positive culture or a positive ID. And interestingly, and they had a lot of patients with septic shock in that, in that uh, cohort, they found actually the delay in antibiotics was associated with a significant improvement in mortality. So this is obviously a very brave study, but it was NIH funded, it was um, uh, ethically uh, approved because they made the argument for it. Um, clearly, I think you know, hospitals and many other hospitals would indeed struggle to have the equipoise to do that. But I think it's a, it's a very interesting standout paper that uh, obviously hasn't yet been reproduced by anybody else. Thank, thank you for that. Um, and, and I guess, Dr. Lewis, I'd ask you similarly, um, um, but, you know, uh, as we practice intensive care medicine, it's a little different than uh, pre-hospital care and, and delivering it, you know, we have patients on ventilators. We have patients who have many reasons for fever. They're on multiple uh, medications that can cause fever. They're at risk for venous thromboembolism, but they're also at risk for ventilator-associated pneumonia, et cetera. So I wonder what your approach or what you think is the best approach currently in terms of when do you even start, you know, in your study, the clock started ticking from ED registration. When you're talking about an ICU, um, even if you're starting a clock, is that at the onset of shock? Is that at the onset of fever? Is that the onset of uh, the order for stat antibiotics? I'm not sure exactly what the best way to even go about approaching that, um, trying to meet that, uh, a goal of earlier antibiotics, and, and where do you think are our best next steps as we, you know, from where we, where we go from here? Yeah, I'm really excited about the pre-hospital work. Um, I think for better or worse, by the time a patient reaches the ICU, we're kind of dealing with an exit wound. Um, you know, we do our best to patch it up and try to prevent further injury and de uh, deterioration, but the the size of that wound has been determined based on things that happened before we saw the patient. Um, so I think a heavy focus on the earliest opportunity that would have the greatest benefit with the least harm. Um, I think certainly if we can move up the time to antibiotics, it seems plausible that um, if we can move that time to antibiotics 30 to 50 minutes before a patient reaches the emergency department through, uh, you know, emergency medical staff, um, you, know, I w you know, again, would love to see the results of that, and I think that'll give us a lot of knowledge about um, to help to flavor the studies about antibiotic timing. We have some emerging work um, looking even before that, days before that, um, in order to identify signals among patients who are kind of normally invisible to us about whether they're giving off signals of infection and risk. Um, and maybe we can even avoid them being seen by in the emergency room in the first place or being hospitalized for infection in the first place if we have the tools that allow us to risk stratify them and kind of consider using or not using antibiotics. Obviously, in that population, let's say five days before they might go on to 
be hospitalized for sepsis, your prevalence rates are vastly different, right, than the patient who's in an, emerg an ambulance or in the emergency room. So the, the potential for harm, and harm in this case meaning inappropriate antibiotics to a large population, is very high. So those, so those are all things we're looking into and considering. Um, I think it's really challenging in the, in the ICU setting. These patients um, are very sick. And um, I'm not sure that there that there is really uh, that uh, that there is a specific threshold that can be set based on the evidence that's available today. Thank you for that uh, response, Dr. Liu. But you have dep depressed me, saying that you know we're basically dealing with the exit wound there in the ICU. But uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd ask Dr. Singer for your final thoughts um, as we go forward and as this uh, this. Um, uh, database uh, of all these studies uh, that you both have described very well continues to grow, and hopefully we have more promising prospective study. Um, so, for the practicing intensivist or the or the director of an ICU who's sort of faced with these sort of studies and saying, you know, patients with shock have a 1.8% uh, increase in mortality each hour you don't deliver or early antibiotics. In 2017, what do we do with this as we await um, more data that that, that uh, clarifies uh, the, the best uh, approach? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I, I think actually, uh, and hopefully Vinny will agree, I, I, I uh, agree on exit wound uh, concepts, but I think the problem's not with intensive care. The problem is before intensive care because we're, we're just sort of mopping up uh, the aftermath, as it were. And in fact, actually, interestingly, there's a lot of data, you know, looking at a whole variety of biomarkers that you can actually prognosticate pretty well in the emergency department. So even patients of sort of equal severity, you can pick out the patients who will live and die. And there are studies looking, for example, at um, cytokines, at um, troponin levels, in the emergency department are strong prognosticators. So by the time these patients have declared themselves and have got sick enough to need to get to an ICU, and there's always an inherent logistic delay in getting that patient to the ICU, uh, you know, um, if the boat has sailed, uh, it's well and truly gone often by the time they arrive in the ICU. So it's very much a pre-ICU challenge. Uh, totally agree with Vinny, and uh, we'll... I'm sure come on to discuss it in a few minutes, but the the challenge is to try and get the patient who needs antibiotics early and promptly and appropriately, because we, if we are going to treat it, it does make sense to give the right antibiotic, then we want to pick out the patients who absolutely need them. The vast majority of patients um, who are treated for infection in, intense, in hospitals, um, in the US, there's data. In the UK, there's data. It's only a tiny minority develop sepsis, organ dysfunction, and go on to die. So, um, for example, in the surviving sepsis, oh, sorry, the um, sepsis 3 analysis, and Vinnie uh, was a, a, a major contributor to the analyses there, on average in the US, it was about 4 to 6% of all patients 
in whom cultures were taken, antibiotics were started, only about 4% of those patients actually died in hospital. And we don't know why they died. Did they die of the infection or did they have the underlying disease that you know, precipitated their death? They had end-stage cancer, uh, renal failure, dementia, stroke, whatever. So, uh, again, it's, it's trying to better understand the, I suppose, appropriateness of antibiotics relative to the patient and what the underlying, the attributable mortality is related to the infection and what's going on in the background for that particular patient in terms of their acute and chronic morbidities. Um, similarly, in the UK, I, I've, I've seen some recent UK data that about 1.1 million uh, cases of suspected infection or sepsis. Oh, sorry. Let me start again. Um, in the UK, in a calendar year of two years ago, 1.1 million cases uh, of patients going through hospitals were coded on discharge as having either an infection or sepsis. And of those patients, only 33,000 died, which is 2.5%. And of those 33,000 patients, only about a third actually went to intensive care. Now, clearly, were they all dying in droves before they got to intensive care, or we didn't have bed capacity, or maybe they were end-of-life types of patients. Three, more than three-quarters of the patients who died were over 75 years old. So the likelihood, and we don't have the data, but the likelihood is many of these patients had probably very severe underlying uh, illnesses. So we went from uh, Dr. Liu mentioning the exit wounds, and then uh, Dr. Singer mentioned we mop up in the ICU. So I'm thoroughly depressed. But I, I think your other your point was completely um, uh, was, was right on target. Uh, and certainly, this you know, there's been with better supportive care, with earlier attentive care, and trying to unpack, I guess, antibiotics is a challenge. But certainly, in trials like Process and Arise. Uh, and, and the other studies, we've shown uh, decreases in mortality in, in patients with severe sepsis in the past and, and now in septic shock. And so I think uh, that is certainly something um, that the field uh, can be um, happy with as we try to continue to get better. Um, and Dr. Liu, do you have any final thoughts as we're coming to a close in this podcast? Yeah, I, I think that um, molecular diagnostics and, and novel, you know, tools, um, whether that's cytokines or gene expression, um, I think have the power to really unlock um, the determination of actionable subgroups um, as well as enhance our prognostication. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that over the next several years that we'll see a lot of that emerge and, and be clinically available. Um, I think that we need to um, expand the scope beyond the ICU, not only out to the emergency room, but before sepsis and after sepsis, because, you're, you know, if it's the very old patient, you know, they may well, right, we didn't kill, we, we, you know, got them through this hospitalization, but then they die shortly after that or, or have very low quality of life. Um, you know, and I think it's really a multidisciplinary effort, um, because a lot of the care 
you know, the best care we think happens as early as possible. And, and it's based on clinical judgment. You know, you know, five or seven years ago, we had a checklist of things we have to do. And, and as, as Mervyn suggested, those have slowly been taken away. So we're left with antibiotics, if anything. Um, and even I, I think that the feeling is it's best clinical judgment, you know, um, most appropriate care based on your assessment of patients. We do have some risk tools to help us prognosticate, but even then, they're, they're population-based. They don't necessarily um, tell you about this single patient. Um, and so I think it's a multidisciplinary process, um, and it's getting, you know, as much as you can, the operational and logistical kinks out of those transitions of care that might prevent you from, if you think this patient needs antibiotics, get them as early as you can and try to reduce the barriers that might um, hold up that process, whether it's a transition between care units, whether it's something, uh, communication between staff in the hospital or some other operational um, thing, um, you know, the location of the antibiotics in the unit of interest. Um, so I think that's where we're headed. And, um, you know, again, I, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing molecular tools that help to reshape the way that we deliver care. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's an excellent point, Dr. Liu, though. I will say, uh, you know, we keep hearing, you know, um, the availability of, uh, you know, genome-wide expression patterns and uh, other sort of biomarkers in real clinical time. I've been hearing that now for uh, at least a decade, and we haven't really been able yet to uh, implement that at the bedside to sort of further, you know, better risk stratify patients um, and try to get a better evaluation of host pathogen interaction. So hopefully that that um, we are heading there more rapidly. Um, and, and I guess uh, Dr. Singer I'd asked you to close with your your final thoughts about um, uh, about the way forward. I agree with all of Vinny's points. Um, I, I'd add, though, um, two other sort of caveats. One, obviously, yes, it would be lovely to have the molecular diagnostics, ideally point of care, but affordability is going to be a huge issue when the test is a lot more expensive than a course of antibiotics, let alone uh, a dose of antibiotics. Um, the second issue is I think we need to be, I think, more responsible at the moment. And I, I know in the U.S., um, you know, the I think it's, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Medicare, you know, you're, there's the package and the hospital are penalized if they don't uh, comply with the package of care. Likewise, in the U.K., there was a, a quality improvement program called a, a sequin where, again, hospitals are rewarded, well, sorry, it's the other way around, money's taken away from the hospital, and if they fulfill the sequin, they get some of it back as an in, a perverse incentive. And there was one for early antibiotics, and uh, this was done within initially within an hour of arriving in the emergency department. And now that I think there's a little bit more wisdom, and now it's an hour from diagnosis of sepsis, which is perhaps a little bit more logical. Because the, the downside of, dare I say, these stupid diktats is that it's driving inappropriate antibiotic use. Um, to give a horrible example, I was hearing yesterday at a meeting in the UK of one hospital where um, there's an early warning score, um, which is nationally adopted, called the new score. And in one hospital, if the patient has a new score of five or more, they automatically get an antibiotic which I, I was just horrified about because in this era of antimicrobial resistance, 
and it's getting worse year by year, we have to be responsible. You know, we haven't really discussed antibiotic stewardship, but it is an increasing problem. Thankfully, from a UK perspective, it's not as bad as I know certain parts of America, Southern Europe, India, China, Russia, South America. So we don't as yet have the same problem. But you know, we are, the world is running out of uh, options. And if we have this indiscriminate use of antibiotics, and again, lots of studies report that once the patient's been started on an antibiotic, clinicians are generally reluctant to stop the antibiotic, even though there's clear evidence they don't have an infection or let's just finish the course. So I think, unfortunately, we're sitting on a, a powder keg that is exploding uh, in our faces, although because we're only looking at individual patients, I don't think we quite appreciate the enormity. So, again, interestingly, uh, there's another imperative in the UK to reduce antibiotic use. So what they found is overall consumption in antibiotics in the in UK hospitals has gone down about 10-15%, but it's gone up in emergency departments. And there's been no clear evidence yet that that's made any difference to uh, outcomes. You know, Vinny's point uh, that he made at the start, I think, is really true. Clearly, if the patient presents in a sicker state, they're generally more likely to do worse. Um, what's that, you know, incremental benefit of an antibiotic? You know, wouldn't it be nice to know? But, you know, thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to participate in the discussion. Cheers. Well, thank you for that, that nice summary. And I, I think what's... Uh, I think we have consensus here between the, the two of you that certainly the the currently available data doesn't suggest a, a specific time threshold to first antibiotic is appropriate. But I think Dr. Singer did allude to the more depressing um, notion that certainly um, you know bundles of care and measurements of quality are measuring that, and there are enormous pressures on physicians to. Um, to get that first dose in, um, and then the unintended consequence of resistance, and how do we deal with that in stewardship if the pressures are all on the other side? I think that's a, another important discussion um, that we'll have to have at another time. So I wanted to thank you both for, for an, a great discussion, and to our listeners, you can find Dr. Liu's article as well as Dr. Singer's accompanying editorial on the podcast homepage at atsjournals.org. And you can find the complete archive of the Out of the Blue podcast on ATSJournals.org or subscribe to Out of the Blue by searching for the American Thoracic Society in the iTunes Store or your favorite podcast provider. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.